Life in a Small French Village, Episode 4, The Neighbours. One day, when I first arrived in the village, I was walking down my road when two women appeared and placed themselves directly in front of me. "'You're the new neighbour, said one. "'You want a coffee?' "'It was a rather abrupt invitation, "'and not, I sensed, an entirely friendly one. "'It had been prompted by curiosity, I knew, "'and that was just fine with me. "'I'm also curious. "'Who were these women? "'What were their interiors like? "'I was dying to know.' "'Come on,' said the older one in a chicken-like voice.' She, a rather squat, lumbering woman with black hair and surprisingly beautiful blue eyes, led me into her house. The other followed. She was more astonishing-looking, surprisingly fat, and every part of her body seemed to be pulled out of its normal shape by fat. She wore a tight top and a tiny mini-skirt, and on her perfectly round face was a sneer. The house interior was actually very simple. We sat in the kitchen where walls were lacquered baby blue. A large television was propped on a cupboard and there was a wood-burning oven, a gas range, a table with a sticky oilcloth and formica chairs. On the wall was a picture of a shepherd dog leaping over a fence, another of the singer Johnny Halliday and a third of Julio Iglesias. And sitting on the table's sticky oilcloth was a quantity of cheap makeup. Lipsticks, eyeshadow, powder, blush. Makeup, said the round woman, and pushed some of the compacts and boxes in my direction. Why don't you buy it? It sounded more like a threat than anything else. Because I don't need makeup. I don't even wear it. This is good makeup. You should buy it. I realized then this hadn't been a fortuitous meeting, but more of a stakeout. The two women had been watching out for me. And what are your names, I asked, hoping to divert them from their mercenary endeavour. I'm Mary Paul, said the blue-eyed woman. The other snickered evilly. Her nickname in the village is La Poubelle. La Poubelle didn't even look offended. A poubelle is a rubbish bin. Only I was shocked. Why? Why do they call you that? Round shape roared with laughter. Because they say only garbage comes out of her mouth. La Poubelle still didn't look offended, but I was rather stunned by her friend's lack of tact. And you? What do they call you, I asked. This time it was La Poubelle's turn to chortle. La Grosse, or Fatty. But La Grosse only roared with laughter again. And does anyone have a nickname for me yet, I asked. Both women stopped chortling and looked shifty. Some call you the string bean, others the foreigner but I had the definite feeling there was another name, one they weren't mentioning. Buy the makeup, said Lagros, returning to the attack. Why don't you want to buy the makeup? We make money selling it. Dracula came to see you, interrupted La Poubelle, also known as Mary Paul. We know she did. You know who Dracula is, right? The one with two teeth. Yes, I said. Why deny anything? In a small village, news runs faster than eggs on oiled glass. You have to be careful with her. She's crazy. Stay away from her. Thanks for the advice. I had no intention of taking it, of course. But these two must be the bad women Dracula had warned me about. I soon came to know both women well. 
and Mary Paul's house was the place a little circle of village women went for coffee. It was also the hub for gossip, which is how she had earned her nickname. And because this was the hub, possibly because there was always a pot of very vile coffee mixed with strong chicory on the hob, Mary Paul was content. She was always avid for gossip, for gathering and spreading it, although, to give her credit, only to a select few. The select few would, of course, take the information further, but that wasn't Mary Paul's problem, was it? Mary Paul's husband was an agricultural worker at the big farm down at the crossroads. She had six children of varying strangeness and doubtful appearance, all except one, Natalie, and she was a beauty. But Mary Paul must also have been a beauty in younger days before childbearing and a high-starched diet thickened her out. Natalie was also a dancer. There actually was a local dance teacher. And the girl dreamt of becoming a professional ballerina, an ambition encouraged by her teacher, for she had talent. Not only that, Natalie was simple, charming and good-natured. Her eyes were very large and blue, her hair dark and long, her chin was pointed, and she had a dancer's natural grace and slenderness. Her one default was her teeth. They were jagged, out of place. A dentist at the school had once suggested braces, but in Mary Paul's household, dentistry was a subject quickly handled. No money was to be spent on such silliness. This was a very pre-free medical care attitude and not unusual in simple country families, passed down from earlier generations. I bought a toothbrush, said Mary Paul. One toothbrush, it's up there, upstairs for everyone to use. If anyone dared complain about cavities or a toothache, the remedy was drastic. They can go have their teeth pulled out. That way there will be no problem. I don't have any teeth of my own, and I never have problems. Raising six children could be annoying, Mary Paul often said. She hadn't wanted six. After the first feud, she'd gone to the local doctor to ask for birth control, but he'd dismissed her. Women are made to have children, he said. From the 1920s until the middle of the 1970s, contraception and abortion were unavailable. According to the state, sexuality was to be limited to a normal relationship between men and women, and it was allied to reproduction. Only after 1972 was contraception available to adult women. But even so, many doctors in the country couldn't be bothered dispensing the information. It was only when the doctors of the old school were replaced by a newer generation that things changed. And so people bred. In one village, some ten kilometres away, a couple, possibly mentally handicapped, had thirteen children, one every year, and all the children were handicapped as well. Yet no doctor was available to give them advice. The second woman, La Grosse, was another case altogether. Unmarried, she still lived at home, cleaning, cooking for the family, one brother and both parents, who were all three agricultural workers at the farm. And unmarried, she was definitely man-crazy. The tiny miniskirts she wore were a constant provocation, and under them were teensy bikini underpants. 
I know that was what she wore, because she never hesitated to lift her skirt high and show me. No doubt she wanted to shock me. She considered me a mealy-mouthed bourgeois, not worthy of much respect. In the village, all said La Grosse had feu aux fesses, that's a French colloquial expression, and translated means her bottom was on fire. And always snickering, ever mocking, any man was her goal. Her most frequent lover was Chotard, or Redhead, and he lived in a battered half-caravan trailer, half-shack in a field behind our street. I only saw him once or twice, an unpleasant giant of a man who rarely left his caravan. He was known to shoot all the cats in the neighbourhood. For Le Gros, any other passing male was equal prey. Telephone linemen, repairmen of any sort, delivery men. However, her one great passion was the men who came once a year and set up the bumper cars over near the village end. For months before their arrival, she was itching with excitement, elbowing us in the ribs with each salacious reference she made. There were other members of Mary Paul's gossip circle. Madame Blondouet, a nervous, trembling woman who lived on sedatives and whose words came out in a jumble. There was the Algerian, who wrote anonymous letters and sent them to Mary Paul. Mary Paul, of course, always knew they were written by the Algerian, even if unsigned, because they always denounced the Moroccan woman, who lived just across the road from her. The Algerian hated the Moroccan. But by far the nicest of Mary Paul's visitors was Madame Sewiki, although she never actually came into the house, but preferred chatting with Mary Paul out on the street. Perhaps she was keeping up the custom of chatting over the garden gate in her native Polish village. I still have an old photo of the two women. Comforting, familiar figures, shapeless in their blousy, sleeveless cleaning aprons, leaning against the rough stone wall of the courtyard and catching the rays of morning sun. Madame Suwiki lived in a long house divided into two and belonging, of course, to the farm. The first half of the house was occupied by Madame and Monsieur Contal. He had, in his younger days, been a farm worker as well. But by now, both husband and wife must have been in their nineties. They were lithe and tireless gardeners, and their house, with its unpainted wooden shutters and patinaed walls, its bright flowers and window boxes, and nodding against the house wall, looked like something any tourist would take a picture of. It was the ideal picture postcard of rural France. The Cantals were a handsome couple, too. White-haired, finely featured, well-shaped, they would have fit very nicely into that perfect postcard picture. But looks can be deceiving. Madame Contal was a harridan. Nasty, sharp-tongued, she harassed her husband with her shrill voice. You could hear her all the way down the road. That tomato patch looks disgusting. What a lazy man you are. How stupid you are. Move faster, can't you? He never defended himself. He was meek, bowed to a lifetime of bitter insult. I once complimented the Contals on the loveliness of the house and of the many bright flowers, but Madame Contal only looked at me as if I were mad. Her dream, she said, was to get out of the horrid place, move to one of those nice high-rise housing units outside Paris. 
one along the motorway, she said, with a window onto the highway so I can watch cars pass, see something happening for once. The section of the house where Monsieur and Madame Sawicki lived lacked in the patina and charm of the Contas. The Sawicki's children had seen to that. It had had a thick coating of yellow cement added to the exterior, the old shutters had been taken down, and a modern, ugly door replaced the picturesque wooden one. Both Madame and Monsieur Sawicki were absolutely charming, gentle, kind, softly spoken, and polite. They had come from Poland as agricultural workers many years before, but as charming as both were, they never spoke to each other. In fact, they hadn't spoken to each other in over 25 years. Madame Sawicki lived in the kitchen. That was her domain. Monsieur Sawicki lived in the next room, the sitting-dining room. He, an excellent gardener, provided the vegetables that Madame Sawicki cooked. She brought him his food in the sitting room. No words were exchanged. She returned to the kitchen to eat her meal. What had brought on this state of affairs? The Suwikis had eleven children. Far too many, Madame Suwiki decided after the birth of the last. Time to stop. She wouldn't go on producing a baby a year. She announced this to Mr. Suwiki. It's not my fault, he said. It's nature. Well, said Madame Suwiki, it's time to do something about nature, not give it such a free hand. Oh, what do you expect me to do, said Mr. Suwiki, nonplussed. Well, you'd better do something, and until you do, there'll be no more sleeping together. What? said Mr. Suwiki. No more sleeping together? It's a wife's duty to sleep with her husband. And besides, it's a sin to stop having children. Well, sin or no sin, I'm done. Well, what do you expect me to do? Well, just go to the next town, to Plessis. Go into the pharmacy and buy condoms. Condoms? You expect me to go into a pharmacy and buy condoms? Well, you don't expect me to do it, do you? Well, I won't either. I can't, said Mr. Suriki. Why can't you? Because the pharmacist is a woman. I'm not going to ask a woman pharmacist to sell me condoms. I couldn't do a thing like that. Well, if you don't, I won't sleep with you. Fine. OK, if you don't sleep with me, I won't speak to you again. And so it was. For the next 25 years, they lived in the same house and never spoke to each other. And in the evenings, they both climbed the stairs to their little bedroom where two beds stood side by side. Monsieur Suwiki slept in the bed nearest the door, Madame Suwiki in the bed nearest the wall. They raised their children. Their life was otherwise perfectly normal, but there was no conversation. And... Just to look on the good side, there were no bitter recriminations either. And after 25 years, everyone had come to see this as the normal situation. And then, one day, Madame Siriki became very ill. She was rushed to the hospital. It wasn't a fatal illness, but she had given everyone quite a scare. We would all have missed her terribly. And then, one day, during the second week in hospital, Madame Siwiki saw the door of her room open. And there was Monsieur Siwiki, awkward 
shy, miserably contrite, and in his arms was a bouquet of roses. Shyly he came forward, held out the bouquet to his wife. It was a peace offering after all this time, and it was also a declaration of love. Madame Suwiki looked at the roses, looked over at her husband. Then she shook her head and said, It's too late.